what you have to be doing is adjusting your strategy and your underwriting to fit where we are in the market cycle. And nobody has a crystal ball. Like, I don't think any of us expected this to happen literally almost overnight, but it's kind of better for us too, because we see like a sharp blow and now we're adjusting faster than when we're kind of like on a slow downswing where we're trying to adjust at every turn without having a really big catalyst to do so. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. All right, so today on the show, my guest is my dear friend and business partner, Vina Jetty. Vina is a founding partner of Vive Funds and oversees management of over a billion dollars in real estate assets. So Vina is not only a real estate investor, but a philanthropist who founded a national nonprofit organization helping companies and nonprofits understand how they can be better prepared for disaster response. Vina has an undergraduate degree in finance from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Hey, Vina, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working on several deals in the past in Texas and Florida, and now the new one, Element 41 in Georgia. But can you, so I know all about your background, obviously, we've been working (laughs) together for years, but can you tell the audience a little bit about you, you know, your background and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, so I come from a real estate family. So I kind of like snuck in the shortcut, if you will. So my parents actually, my mom started with real estate investing about like 30 something years ago. So I got like the good foundation so I could take a little bit of a shortcut and didn't have to learn everything from the ground up. I kind of grew up in this industry. And then after I graduated from college at University of Illinois in Chicago, I actually went into the corporate real estate world. And that's where I was overseeing a billion dollars in assets there. My most recent corporate gig, I actually had one asset that had over a billion dollar valuation at the time. So today, the multifamily portfolio is a little bit smaller than that. And we have about 300 to 350 million in the portfolios that I help manage and oversee. And so now I really focus on those class B class A institutional grade assets. I mean, and like you said, you know what I like to look at, but your audience doesn't yet. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good segue to talk about the asset, you know, portion of the show. You mentioned that you're investing class A and B multifamily properties. 
and I'm assuming that this is basically your portfolio is based on class A and B. How are your assets doing during COVID? And do you see any difference between assets that are doing better than others in today's market? Yeah. So I think we're at like a really interesting time because we're seeing a pandemic that nobody has ever seen before, right? Like, so I was in real estate in 2008, 2009, like right when it was after that 0708 crash. So I remember very clearly what that time was like. This is unlike anything we've seen even historically in real estate. And so we are seeing some of our assets having a little bit more trouble than others. Typically, the assets that we see that are kind of like struggling along are the ones that have the tenant base that's like a lot more dependent on getting that paycheck, you know, every other week or every week. It's those tenants that don't have, you know, a few thousand dollars saved up in their account that they can save and break out for a rainy day. It's those tenants that have those essential but now being cut jobs. So for example, a manager of a Target, right? They do well, they qualify in a lot of our buildings, but they may be working less hours because they're now furloughed for half of the time. Or I've seen a lot of places, including physicians that are getting cut on their salary by 20%, a mandatory cut, which is, I mean, essentially, or it's, I think it's actually, they make them agree to the cut and it ends up if you don't, then you don't have a job. So I don't know if you want to call that an involuntary cut. And so we're seeing that across the assets. I think that the big area we're seeing the most impact to the financials is really on the bad debt line, right? And so as bad debt is kind of increasing, it's about managing that and making sure that we can continue to get tenants that can pay and do pay their rent into our property. And the ones that are already there working with them to try to get them into a payment plan of some sort. And do you see any difference in markets or asset classes, either in your portfolio or your, or what you see just in the market of assets that are doing better than others? Yeah. So I think that since primarily my current portfolio is in Texas and Florida, those two states have done like a pretty terrible job of managing the pandemic. And, you know, I live in Texas, so I totally know what this is like here boots on the ground. I think that because they've done such a poor job of managing compared to other states, we're seeing a little bit more impact in some of those states. Now, within each state, we're kind of seeing different pockets and even further within that, the submarkets are doing differently. And so again, it's dependent on where your tenant base is employed, right? Like so in one of my properties where I have a lot of higher paid like retail workers or customer facing workers, I'm seeing a lot more issues there than I am, for example, at one of my Orlando properties where everybody's pretty much tech and they are already working from home or on element 41, right? As we were looking at that, that was one of our big concerns. And what I loved about that property is that during the first like wave of this pandemic, everybody had already switched to like a virtual situation. So there's very minimal concern about the impact a second wave would potentially have at that asset. I think too, the other issues that we kind of are seeing within just looking at new assets and also looking internal to our portfolio is it also kind of depends where you are in your market cycle, right? So assets that are kind of like right in the middle of the project, like you've already spent your capex because you've already done your renovations and improvement. 
you've already accounted for X amount of growth year over year. And now that's kind of being pulled back. You're seeing an impact to your bad debt. And you're also seeing an impact to your other income, right? Because now you're not getting your like admin fees. You're not getting your application fees. Maybe you're increasing your referral fees. So I think all of those added together are kind of the perfect storm, which in any other kind of downturn, it wouldn't actually be a huge issue. But in a global pandemic, it kind of puts things in a weird spot. But you know what? Like I think that just like anything else, real estate is going to continue to be one of the you know, sweethearts of the investment world. You know, historically, multifamily has always recovered really well. And if you look to people that are putting a lot more money into deals than we are, and I'm talking about Fannie and Freddie, for example, they're very bullish on multifamily right now. Of all the asset classes, that's the one that they seem to be liking the most. And, you know, they're investing billions of dollars, not just, you know, hundreds of millions or tens of millions of dollars. So I think that that's an important indicator for the rest of us that they still like multifamily as an asset class. They do way more due diligence than any of our investors do or can do into a deal, right? Right. Yeah. And and we we definitely see that on the deal that we're working together. And for those of you who, who don't know, Freddie and Fannie, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're the government-backed agencies that are lending, not only for multifamily, but you know for industrial and retail and office. And they have been very bullish on multifamily. They're also very careful. But if we're buying, for instance, you know, an $80 million deal, then $60 million out of the $80 million is coming from Freddie or Fannie. So they're yeah. the ones who are taking you know, the largest amount of risk because they're actually wiring $60 million from you know, their funds to the seller's you know, bank account. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think the fact that they're still lending and that they've shifted their focus to multifamily, that says a lot. I mean, it says that they truly believe in multifamily as an asset class, especially in, in today's you know, market. And of course, they're not crazy about every deal. You know, I'm, I bet that class A and B are doing better than class C and D, and that's where their focus is also. They're going to think twice before they're going to you know, lend to a property that the tenant base is very much, you know, dependent on, you know, in the service industry or any other industry that is more. Vina, let's talk a little bit about the process. And I know sometimes process could sound very boring, but I want to talk about due diligence during COVID. And I think a lot of investors are wondering how do you conduct, you know, due diligence during COVID? So when you're buying a multifamily property, 100 to 500 units, part of the 30 days due diligence period is to walk each and every unit. Now, how do you do that in the middle of a pandemic? So walk me through kind of, you know, how does it look like to run due diligence during COVID? Yeah, you do it very carefully. That's how you do it. So, and Ellie knows this because I've been handling the due diligence on our deal and I've been like calling her at like 10 o'clock every night. I'm like, okay, so here's the new challenge and here's how I think we need to solve it. And she's like, okay, that might not work or it might work. And so, one of the things that we've been talking through is how do you get a team of people responsibly to walk through 500 units in like two days? And Really, the answer is you are very, very careful. You're now spending a lot less time in units. You're making sure that your team knows 
exactly when they go in, like we go one, two, three, four, and they're in and out in under three to five minutes. They should be anyway, but now it's like even more crucial. We are noticing tenants and we are doing a pre-inspection like health assessment for each unit. So if anybody has any kind of symptoms or any kind of exposure, we don't risk our teams. You know, and Ellie and I both feel pretty strongly that the safety of our people is like paramount. That's number one that goes without saying. And so if that means we can't walk 10 units because we can't safely do it, then we just don't, right? And so one of the things I think it's important for people to start doing like you did in the contract negotiation is putting in there certain provisions that allow for us to not be able to walk these units without increasing our risk from not walking them. I'm seeing a lot of other operators that are walking like 30% of units and saying like, okay, we have a fairly good idea of what's happening in there. You and I are a little bit neurotic. So we're like, like no, okay, we still have like 0.3% of units left. So when can we see those before due diligence, right? Like people think we're crazy, literally. Like I sound like a crazy person to everybody that I'm like, okay, guys, we still have like five units left on this 500 unit deal. And they're like, what, what do you mean? Like, we're still going to walk those. And so, yes. look, I think that now even more than ever, it's important to have as much due diligence completed. And I think the other thing too, that we have kind of seen and that we're paying a little bit more attention to is how COVID is impacting the financials. So now we pay a lot more attention on the lease audit to who could potentially not work from home, right? And what does that look like? Of the tenants that are there, how many of them are really making up bad debt? Previously, if it was like, you know, 5% of your bad debt is made up of like a few different tenants, that's okay, especially if they're small balances. Now we care more about are there large balances that are making up like half of the bad debt? So maybe it's like three or five people that make up 40, 50% of your bad debt. That's important to us because it's not a deterrent. And for a lot of people, it will be, right? But for us, that's opportunity. Because one thing we know is COVID isn't going to go on forever, you know, like knock on all the wood, right? But that's what we believe. We believe that this is going to be a short-term issue. We underwrite for it in the short term. We underwrite for it a little longer than the short term so that we can sustain it. We underwrite with the idea that there could be a second wave of this pandemic. And then we move on from it because you know, eventually the world, we're seeing other countries that are getting back to normal. And we have no reason to believe that we won't eventually get there, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I think that we should start shifting our due diligence focus and kind of what we care about and what we look at as opportunity versus what we look at as risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when it comes to where we are right now in a cycle, I've heard a lot of investors, you know, six months and a year ago saying the market is too hot. I'm just going to wait for the right opportunity. Here we are. (laughs) Now the right opportunity has arrived. And then a lot of them are just too scared. So no, 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 no. We want to wait. So are you going to wait until the market rebounds. I mean, you can, but you're going to lose a lot of opportunities along the way. And like you've mentioned, if you have, you know, two, three, four tenants that are making up a big portion of the bad debt, which is basically all the delinquent rent, the rent that cannot be collected, it's much easier to deal with them Mm -hmm. than if we're talking about, you know, 25 different 
tenants, now that's a different story. We can handle right. a few tenants that aren't able to pay right now. It's a different story. So you're absolutely right. It's not just to look at the numbers and get scared. It's understanding what is the story behind those numbers? What is this 50, 40, $160,000, you know, is it normal? Is it not normal? Is it one time? Who is behind that? Because trust me, you can kill every deal after five minutes of underwriting. And you can also make it great if you're not being very, you know, conservative. And we're both very, very conservative. So yeah, it's one of the things I, I like a, about you. That was kind you. of the challenge when we started together, right? Is like, yeah. we got carried away with how conservative I think we both are that we were like fueling each other's fire. And we're like, okay, wait. And then Freddie Mac called you, like the lender called you and was like, Ellie, stop it. Like you're being way you're too, being conservative. too conservative. <laughs> Never thought I'm going to hear that from a lender. Oh, lender. I know. Right. Lenders are usually like, mm, no, no, no. You're trying to spend, you know, a hundred dollars on marketing. It should be like three cents. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that's just, and I think that that really is how people should be underwriting right now, because there is a lot of uncertainty in terms of what does this look like for the next six months? And again, I think that you have to look at this more as an opportunity than as a hurdle or a risk because it's a very short-term risk. We know a pandemic isn't happening for the rest of time. Like There have been other pandemics in society that we've made it through with far less technology and medical advancements than we have today. That's true. And I think you know, if we're talking about the strategy and how we're adjusting during COVID, if you think about it, two years ago, when sponsors had deals that showed continuous rent growth year over year, that was a lot riskier than in today's market when you're actually buying something as long as you know the assumptions are conservative. We're actually not accounting for any rent increases in the first 12 months. It's pretty extreme. And then, you know, starting year two, we're looking at moderate increases you know, year over year, that's a lot more, I would say, sane, you know, view of any deal than what it was two, three, five years ago when investors just thought, oh, this is going to go on forever. Well, no. I mean, no market does, right? Like, so a downturn market isn't going to go on forever and an upswing isn't going to go on forever. And we know that, right? And I think you and I've had this conversation before, but like, listen, if you can't be acquiring at every point in a real estate cycle, you don't actually have a business. What you have to be doing is adjusting your strategy and your underwriting to fit where we are in the market cycle. And nobody has a crystal ball. Like, I don't think any of us expected this to happen literally almost overnight, but it's kind of better for us too because we see like a sharp blow and now we're adjusting faster than when we're kind of like on a slow downswing where we're trying to adjust at every turn without having a really big catalyst to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about strategy, what other parts of your business or your underwriting or business plan have you adjusted because of COVID? Yeah. So I think that now we are, like I said, we've improved our protocols from like a strategy perspective. I don't think that that has changed. And I think that that's changed for a lot of people. And I don't think it should change for a lot of people. I'm certainly not like advocating that people go and get exposed to COVID because you're going through a lot of units. But I do think like, you know, add your sanitizer, your PPE, all of that into your costs of underwriting the deal when you're going into the acquisition mode. 
I think that that's a new expense that we maybe haven't had in the past. So I think you should account for those things. I think that, like you said, change your strategy with regard to what you think you can do in year one. So if you take the current seller's T12 and you just maintain at the same level that they're at, what does that look like? Does that still get you the returns that you need? I think right now we are adjusting investor expectations to meet the market where it is. I know like even three years ago, getting a 20% IRR was like, yeah, you can do that on most B-class assets and like A-minus assets. That's not where we are today. If someone is telling you that, then it's a risk-adjusted return. So you need to consider the amount of risk you're taking on to get that 20% IRR. I think right now we're seeing anywhere from 12 to maybe 14% on the IRR in those solid asset classes that I personally like to invest into. And I know you like to invest into those. And I think that those are really the returns that should be expected from this current market cycle. I think we're also seeing a lot of adjustment on our CapEx plan, right? So in the past, we may have had a much more broad definition or plan of how we were going to run our CapEx budgets. Today, I mean, you and I are planning out literally on a month-by-month basis of where we're triggering our CapEx spend. We're also changing our trigger points for how and when we make that spend. We're now getting a lot more involved in, hey, are these dollars that we need to spend today? Or can we wait like 12 months and spend those? Can we spend half of them today and then spend the other 50% over the next three years? So we're adjusting all of the strategies around that. And it's going to be on an asset-by-asset case. But I think that generally speaking, trying to minimize your expenses in year one is a great strategy. I think that stress testing, increasing vacancy is a big one that we're kind of looking at now. I think that internally, we stress test everything to see like, okay, what's the sensitivity of all of these numbers? And I think that's really important. I don't think I've seen a whole lot of operators that are doing the same level of analysis that you and I have been doing. And I think that that's important to know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think without getting into analysis paralysis, it is important to stress test and say, right now, vacancy is 5%. What happens if we take it to 9%? You know, at what point are we losing money? You know, is it 25% vacancy? Is it 10? And that's important to know because we also, you know, the size of the deals that we're doing, we attract, you know, a lot of institutional investors and family offices and their expertise is to just to run those numbers in all different scenarios. And, yeah. and most deals just don't work for them because they're very sophisticated. They know they've been through multiple cycles. That's why they're so big because they played it right in all cycles. And those big players, they never stopped investing through an entire portion of the cycle because it's a downturn. They've always, you know, found the right deal. And they're the ones who are actually looking at those deals and stress testing. So I think it just, it just adds, you know, it's just nice. You know, it's another assurance to say, hey, if this is a good deal, if not, you would probably hear from those guys saying, guys, this is, this deal doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. So in my personal investment strategy, because I invest passively in deals also, but now in this market, I'm also looking for those deals where there are other family offices or there are other institutional players involved. And it's not because I think that they are like, you know, they have a crystal ball or something. It's because they have the resources that most individual investors do not have at their fingertips. They have literal teams that their only job is to look at hundreds of these opportunities 
and say no to like 99 of them. So when they've said yes to one of them, then it doesn't mean that it's right for everybody's portfolio individually. But if the deal already works and then you see a family office investing or an institutional fund investing, that's like a whole game changer, right? Because now they've had someone who's literally trained to say no to these deals who's saying yes. And I think that that's an important thing because you don't see that on a whole lot of deals these days. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me, it's kind of similar to an angel investor, someone who invests with VCs. If you know there's a VC backing up a startup, (laughs) they have all the resources, they've done all the work. It's, you know, and I feel more comfortable investing in those companies than if there was no VC you know, backing up the company, I would, I would ask why, or, you know, or at least I'll feel more comfortable investing along with a big VC with a lot of resources and it's just a different game. It is. They have more at risk, right? They have returns that they have to meet in order to continue being successful. And if they don't see your project as an opportunity to do that, then they're not going to invest in it. And they have no like shortage of deals. Yeah. And they're not looking to invest a hundred thousand dollars or even half a million. We're talking about millions of dollars and if not tens of millions of dollars. So they really invest time, you know, in learning those opportunities. Yeah, well, that that was great. Vina, we have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Oh, all right. I'm ready. All right. Vina, what's your favorite hobby? Oh, gosh, I have so many like random hobbies. Recently, it's been binge watching like certain shows on Netflix that I never watched before. And now there's like no new shows coming out. So I've been like binge watching TV, but I also like to hang with the family. Mm, With the girls. Yeah, they're getting so big so fast. So I feel like I'm missing everything. (laughs) How old are they now? 18 months? 14 months now. 14 months. Okay. Oh my gosh. Don't age them, Ellie. They're already like (laughs) walking. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) I still have some time. Yeah, a little. Well, what's the one thing that people don't know about you? Oh gosh. Well, I think a lot of people probably don't know that I have twin girls because I don't really put them on social media at all. Yeah. So I have twin, like 14 month old. So one year old plus girls. And I think the other thing people don't know about me is I can eat sushi at any given meal and I can also just like subsist off of cupcakes. So. <laughs> Very nice. So what do you wish you had known when you just started investing in real estate? Well, I wish I had known you because we could have done a lot more deals together when I first started. Right? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish that I had also known Okay, that when you're going into your deals, it's really important to plan for scale at the onset versus trying to plan for scale when you're like mid doing your deals and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I have a hundred things to do and I need like an underwriter and I need an asset manager and I need all these different various team members. And now I'm like, okay, well, listen, as I go into this next phase or this next growth level, here's how I'm going to manage that scale. So I think by planning out the scale up front, you can save like a lot of time and energy and effort that it's much harder to do mid deal. 
Brilliant. That's what I always say. They have to think about it, you know, as business from day one. It's going to be a lot easier for you than to try and do it all and then try and, you know, scale and understand how to change things. And so I, that was actually the answer to my next question, which was what's what would be your advice for someone who wants to scale their business? That was that's perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I would say also. Yeah. So, Vina, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and talk to you about multifamily investing? Yeah, they can find me on my website, vivefunds.com, B-I-V-E, funds, F-U-N-D-S.com, or all sorts of social media. You'll probably see me on Ellie's page every now and then. So you can find me you know, through all social media platforms. All right, Vina, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And you know, to you, the listeners, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation that we had today, that you learned something about real estate investing. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.